This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Imagine you're on a beautiful desert island. You've unplugged from the digital world. No cell phone, no Twitter, no Facebook, no radio, and no TV. You can only take with you five books. Which five books would you choose and why? These are the questions we're asking the faculty on Season 3 of Office Hours. Joining us on the island today is Dr. Michael Horton, J. Gresson Machen Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California. He's author of The Christian Faith, A Systematic Theology for Pilgrims on the Way, and The Gospel Commission, among many other titles. These are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Mike, and welcome to the island. Good to be on the island. Wherever that island is, that's where you are. So the, Sounds good. the picture is you're on a ship, let's say a cruise ship, and you were giving some lectures and the thing cracks up and uh, your floatable suitcase, which you had packed already with your English Bible, we're stipulating that, your Greek Testament, your Hebrew, your Aramaic, and your Septuagint, and five other books. And it's those five others that we want to discuss today. What five books did you bring with you that are going to sustain you on this island until the rescue comes? Well, thank you, first of all, for helping me to pack more thoughtfully in the future. Uh, I'm sure Dr. Godfrey has more interesting titles that he would mention. I am pretty boring, so I think that I would probably bring books that I've benefited from but would like to read again and read more carefully, like Irenaeus's Against Heresies. I think probably uh, Augustine's works. Okay, well, let's work through them one at a time. Okay. And presumably, if you're bringing... Well, we'll get to Augustine. That would be a really large suitcase. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't think I could probably bring all that. <laughs> okay. De Trinitate, maybe. Okay. So, interesting <laughs> now, your first volume that you're going to sit down and read. You built your hut, and uh, you built your fire, and so now you're just waiting and uh, talking to your volleyball. Yeah. About this time, I'm probably suffering heat stroke and all sorts of other maladies well, we're because hoping... I have a weak constitution. <laughs> we're hoping it's a pleasant island with nice palm trees and warm, gentle breezes. Okay. A nice little vacation. And so you've got with you Irenaeus against heresies. Tell us a little bit about this work and, and why that's on your five books that you want with you on the island. I'm always looking for personal edification, but also for resources that help me understand how to respond to crises in my own day. Well, not just crises, but opportunities. And I think one of the issues that we're facing is the perennial threat of Gnosticism. The Gnostic heresy in the second century was a profound challenge to the early church, and basically it created a more seeker-friendly version of Christianity for Greeks. It blended Greek mystery religion and Stoic Platonic philosophy, not so much Platonic, more Stoic philosophy, with Christianity. And so you get the same names that you find in the Bible. You get the same events recorded in the Bible, but they don't mean what they meant. They're turned on their head. That's what you get today, not only with a lot of cults, but also, frankly, with Protestant liberalism, with a lot of movements and trends, even sometimes in our own evangelical world. And so Irenaeus put the focus on history, 
You know, Gnostics were trying to escape from matter and the body and history, floating up into the uh, ether of pure ideas. And they sharply contrasted the Jesus of history with the Christ of faith, sort of like other people we could think of in the 20th century down to the present. For instance, Rudolf Bultmann, John Spong, and others. And frankly, a lot of the piety that you often hear in some Christian, even more conservative circles, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. And of course, the apostle said, no, you know, what our hands have touched, our eyes have seen, our ears have heard, that's our witness. We're not witnessing to what happened in our heart, we're witnessing to what happened in history. And Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, the martyr, who was a disciple of John the Apostle, Irenaeus was one of the arch defenders of the Christian faith against that Gnostic heresy. He was Bishop of Lyon in Gaul, what is now southern France, and really single-handedly almost refuted Gnosticism with their own texts. A lot of what we now know about Gnosticism from secondary literature comports with Irenaeus's description. A lot of people say it's really remarkable when you have a vociferous critic— even quote-unquote heresy hunter, so accurately present the different nuances and views of those he's critiquing. And so Irenaeus is very useful, even just apart from the Gnostic challenge. It's a great work because he goes through the whole history of redemption, really for the first time among a theologian. And so he's so grounded in and controlled by and interested in the incarnation life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, his return in the flesh, and what all of that means for us. And it's a really, again, aside even from the polemics, it's a wonderfully edifying and, and enriching work. If somebody were looking for a copy so that they could read him for themselves, where would you send them? The Anti-Nicene Fathers, the series published by Erdman's in the 1950s. It's still out there. It's a tough read. It's five books, and it's not books the size that we think of books, but it's still one hefty volume. You're listening to Office Hours. From Westminster Seminary, California. Great. What's your second volume? You know, I hesitate to repeat myself ad nauseum, but Calvin's Institutes, you know, one of the things about the Institutes is that second to Scripture, of course, It's one of those timeless classics that you could read over and over again and get something new out of it every time. By now, my two-volume set of the Institutes has fallen apart. It's held together by uh, all sorts of different tape, and my underlining is useless because every time I've gone back and read through it, I've (laughs) underlined more that I missed, and now the whole thing is underlined. If everything is underlined, then nothing is underlined, yeah. But I think you know, every time I go to it, and other people say the same thing, it is a, an off-putting title. But when you go to it and look at it, it's great for devotions. It's great to read through with friends on the island. It's very practical and wise. When was the first time you read the Institutes? Oh, I don't remember. 13 or 14. Okay. So as a young teenager, mm-hmm. that, yeah. that must have been a—I remember reading it as a young college student. And I was able to make out most of it, but it was a challenge. How was it in your early teen years encountering that text? Yeah, it was a challenge. And that's the thing about a great book. I think that you just have to accept the fact that you're not going to get it on the first reading. What makes a really good book, in my view, uh, at least these kinds of books, 
is that you keep learning so much from every reading that you want to go back and read it again. Not that you get everything out of it that you can get out of the first reading. And that's the way the Institutes works. You can get the basic message, the basic content. You can learn tons just from your first reading of it. But you want to go back and dig in more. I would recommend that people don't use it as a reference work. Don't dip into the Institutes for handy quotes or to read what Calvin has to say about prayer or what he has to say about election, but read through the whole thing. Because really, one of the problems, Scott, you and I have talked about this a lot, one of the problems today, I think, in the new Calvinist movement is a tendency to read so selectively, defined especially by the five points of Calvinism, that even those precious doctrines are a little different in color and even in meaning than they are when they are placed in their wider framework that we find not only in Calvin, but more importantly in the Confessions, and most importantly, of course, in Scripture. It's interesting you think and talk about the Institute as a work that needs to be read and reread, because Calvin wrote it and rewrote it, and it expanded considerably between 1536 and fifteen. 59. And the history of the Institutes is the history of Calvin learning. And as he learned, he re-expressed things, uh, rethought things. I don't know that there were massive changes, but there were some significant changes and developments, as there probably should be in his theology between 1536 as a very young scholar and 1559 as he's entering the last lap of his life. And new controversies. For example, Calvin has to expand more in his treatment of predestination because of the controversies he's having in Geneva with people who are denying it. Early on in the Reform movement, there were lots of—I shouldn't say lots—there were several prominent Reformed theologians who didn't like predestination. And it's interesting, in Calvin's catechism, Geneva Catechism, it doesn't even come up. So the idea that predestination is the central organizing dogma of Calvin's system is ridiculous. Nevertheless, it did receive more attention— the more he had to engage with it. And as he had those controversies and had to go back, for instance, after his attack from Piggyus, which was largely based on the church fathers, Calvin went back to the church fathers, reread them in greater depth, and came back with all sorts of resources that he could use in that debate. So yeah, like any of us, Calvin evolved over time. He wrestled with issues at a very deep and profound level. He took challengers seriously on their own terms and didn't just dismiss them as was common among too many in the 16th century. One of the most helpful handbooks to Calvin's work that I know is a single volume recently issued in a second edition by Wolfert de Grief, and it's an introduction to Calvin's writings, and it situates every one of them in its historical context and in its chronological context. So if the listener is thinking, well, all of this is sort of overwhelming, I highly recommend Wolfert. The title is The Writings of John Calvin, Expanded Edition, an introductory guide, and now published in hardcover and available... Through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California. Should mention, too, Dr. Godfrey, Robert Godfrey's book, John Calvin, Pilgrim and Pastor. Really good introduction. Very accessible introduction to Calvin's life and ministry. Highly recommended. In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. God the Father created through his word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the Word. Faith comes from hearing, 
and hearing through the Word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Your third volume. Oh. Back on the island. Meanwhile, back on the island. Uh, Waiting for Gilligan. Yeah. I think, actually, I would have been Gilligan. There's a title right there, Waiting for Gilligan. (laughs) (laughs) Don't know what it's going to be about, but that's a great title. Steve Ball would be the skipper. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, yes. And uh, the third book, I would say, now it starts to get murky. Luther's Galatians, maybe. Uh, John Owen's works well that you couldn't take all the works one of the guys wants to bring his kindle but he's not sure how he's going to recharge it (laughs) (laughs) very smart but yeah at the end of the day not very useful if it unless you could figure out something with solar panels but we won't go there probably owen's communion with the father in the son so your third choice is john owen communion with god yeah which is available in the bookstore so let's talk about that one one of the things that came out of the reform movement was a renewed emphasis on the distinct persons of the Trinity. There was this tendency, and you don't want to overplay it, but this tendency in Western medieval theology to run the persons of the Trinity together, to so emphasize the one essence. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. All three persons are exactly the same in their essence. Well, but what distinguishes them in their persons? And that we weren't as clear on. Calvin, and not just Calvin, we keep talking about the Reform movement as if Calvin was the only guy, but he was certainly among them. He went back to try to understand why the East and the West couldn't get along over this, why the East so emphasized the distinctness of persons and the West so emphasized the unity of essence. And so he tried to come up with, as he himself said, a way of bringing together, reconciling positions that had been polarized. In the process, the Reformed tradition more generally came to talk about not only the one essence that the three persons share, but the distinct personal attributes of each person. And it's not just that the Father isn't the Son and the Son isn't the Spirit, but that in every external work of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are involved, but differently. They do different things. Everything comes from the Father, in the Son, by the Spirit. Whether it's creation, providence, redemption, the consummation, everything comes from the Father, in the Son, by the Spirit. And John Owen really took that home. And he not only extrapolated the theological significance of that, but the practical significance for the Christian life. We're always in communion with the Father, in the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think that we need this, Scott, in reform circles today. I think we need a more Trinitarian, not only view of God's operations, but a a relationship with God. We talk about a personal relationship with God or a personal relationship with Jesus. We really should be talking about a personal relationship with the Trinity, with the Father, in the Son, by the Spirit. What does that mean? And unpacking that is one of the wonderful things that Owen does there. He brings together the you know, typical Reformed emphasis on union with Christ and the broader fellowship that we have with the Trinity. God brings us into his own intra-Trinitarian community. That's huge. That's significant, not only doctrinally, but practically in the Christian life. 
sometimes people have pictured Owen as if he were a dry, heartless, scholastic. That's not really what you find, is it? Well, it's not what his critics thought. His critics thought that he was uh, a little, shall we say, on the eccentric side. So not dry at all. Not dry at all. Carl Truman has documented this. He points out he was a Renaissance man. He had Italian boots. He wore the latest fashion. As a university student, he was actually known for dressing in a colorful way. <laughs> right. Not exactly your picture of your average Puritan. Yeah, he was vice chancellor of Oxford. He wrote a book on beer making. I didn't know that. Yeah, he was a man of many parts. Ryan Kelly mentioned that. He really was a Renaissance man. He loved art, collected art. And he's not exceptional. The Puritans get a bad rap. The pilgrims are sort of the picture we have of the Puritans, and they were two completely different groups. And they're really just English Reformed folk, right, with yeah. different views of the church. As C.S. Lewis says, it was bishops, not beer, that they disliked. Exactly. And, the, <laughs> and, and Owen is a great illustration of the 17th century and before and after theology, piety, and practice. He really wanted to keep and did keep head and heart together. And you see that in a work like Communion with God. Absolutely. And again, he's not alone. Thomas Goodwin and uh, Richard Sibbs, John Preston, certainly William Perkins. Yeah, the Puritan movement, as you well know, is a very diverse thing. It was united more by what it was against than what it was in itself. It was a very diverse movement. If you get down to asking people what their views of X, Y, and Z are. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. It won't be long before the rescue boat comes. What's your fourth choice? They always say. For the island. Well, there might be out on the horizon. Actually, I should add a book to that, How to Find Non-Poisonous Plants That Are Edible, (laughs) How to Build a Boat. Yeah, you'll wish that Josh Vinnie was with you because his first choice was the U.S. Army Manual on Survival. (laughs) That's why Josh gets paid the big bucks. Uh, Exactly. And you and I would be dying. That's right. Probably found dead on the island. But with a smile on our face and uh, (laughs) Adversus Horasis on our chest. All right. So your fourth volume. You know, I think probably... C.S. Lewis on miracles, because I think that David Hume's arguments against miracles are perennial. You hear them repeated again by the new atheists today. Hasn't changed a lot. And Lewis, again, writes in such a clear way that I think a Richard Dawkins or an average reader who has really no background in the issues could profit from it. And both would come away saying, at least, I think, this is a little different from anything that we've read on the subject. Again, it's lucid, it's clear, it's well-informed, it's well-argued. People do that. They come away from C.S. Lewis saying, even if they say, I still don't believe this, I still think it's rubbish, this is about as good as it gets as far as a defense. And your fifth and final choice for your Desert Island books. I think maybe Charles Taylor's The Sources of the Self. He's also written a very densely packed book, A Secular Age. And both of these books are really important uh, across the board, not just to Christians, but a lot of non-Christians. And these books are, uh, you know, widely referred to today, especially in uh, academic circles. Sources of the Self is uh, one of the best books I've ever read on how selfhood has diminished to the most particular individualistic point, that basically there is a disenchanting of the world, and with that disenchanting and fragmentation of connections comes what he calls a disengaged self, that the pre-modern person was engaged, was connected, 
and that the goal after the Enlightenment was to disengage, to become disconnected. Telling that story is fascinating, and Charles Taylor is great at a sort of narrative of how the history of philosophy developed in that regard. He's also good at the social history side, so it's not just all great ideas shaping things. Another book that does that is A Secular Faith by Charles Taylor, also more recently written. And it really talks about how society has changed from the era of Christendom to the Protestant era and then the post-Enlightenment era and how our modern sensibilities have been shaped. It is, I have to say, probably the most learned the most well-informed from various disciplines, most well-informed book I've read. You know, it's helpful. He's he's an Anglo-Catholic, so he kind of has this uh, romantic view of Christendom and, oh, for the old days when there were movable feasts and, you know, people could spend three hours at lunch and then the Protestants came along and put up clocks instead of crucifixes. And, yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of that in the book. But I think it is helpful sometimes for us to realize that there are some aspects of quote-unquote Protestant culture that were unthinking and that were just routine and just emerged, not really out of any kind of doctrinal or intellectual commitment, but because of forces that were well beyond the control of ministers, but that perhaps at some points Protestants didn't evaluate very carefully or closely. Sometimes Roman Catholics and Anglo-Catholics think more about the relationship between theology and culture, and I think part of that is they've just had more of a history of running it, <laughs> this long history of running a civilization, and we don't want to run a civilization. There isn't such a thing as a Christian culture, but is there a Christian impact on culture? Well, yeah, Protestantism had, a, had an impact on culture. And I don't think it was always as good as it could be. So it's interesting to read the take of people outside of our tradition on some facets. It's a little different from reading Abraham Kuyper's lectures on Calvinism that kind of extol the glories of Calvinism's impact on the culture. We need to balance it. And Charles Taylor is a good resource for that. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.